You're listening to City on a Hill DFW Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church or to support these ministries, visit us at cityonahilldfw.com. It has been 28 years ago, almost to the day, uh, Super Bowl 1996, the Dallas Cowboys beat the Pittsburgh Steelers 27 to 17, capping a historic run in the early 90s, earning three Super Bowls in four years. A remarkable feat, now a part of a bygone era. People talk about the demise of America. It began with the demise of America's team. I just want to put that out there. 1996 was really a good year. There was a, a lot of great things that happened that year. A great diversity of music came out that year. If you're an R&B fan, The Score by the Fugees came out. Anyone? Lorne Hill before Lorne Hill. Uh, alternative fans, you saw Odelay by Beck and Down on the Upside by Soundgarden. Of course, the uh, pop group model, I, I think really began in 96 with uh, Spice by the Spice Girls coming onto the scene. Of course, you're all Christians, so you didn't listen to that music. You listened to contemporary Christian music, which uh, 1996 saw the welcoming of Take Me to Your Leader by the Newsboys, um, Brown by P.O.D., and the self-titled album by Skillet. And who could forget uh, the, the real goat, uh, wow, 1997. Um, <laughs> which you may be saying that was 97, not 96, but it came out in October of 96. If you know, you know. Uh, There were a lot of great movies as well, and one of my favorites that came out that year that I thought about this week as I was prepping this message, and that is The Great Twister. Um, True story, as a kid, I wanted to be a storm chaser because of this movie. Never mind the fact that it is nowhere near an accurate depiction of what a storm chaser actually does. Uh, 11-year-old me was all in. There's this great scene where they're sitting around the table. The main character's fiance is there with him. She knows nothing about storms or tornadoes at all. And they're talking about what they hope to see uh, on their days of work as they go after these various tornadoes. And one of them says, you know, we'll probably see a a couple of F3s. And one of them pipes in and says, maybe even an F4 if we're lucky. That would be sweet. And the naive woman asks, well, what about an F5? And there's dramatic silence. And she asks, what would that be like? And after a tense moment, one of the guys says, the finger of God. The finger of God. The, F, the F5 is the pinnacle of destruction. It's like the finger of God touching the earth. Now, in the real world, uh, F5s are not as rare as they are in this movie. It's kind of seen as a unicorn, I think, in Twister. But they are, relatively speaking, pretty rare. There's only been nine of them in the 21st century. Uh, the last one occurred in Moore, Oklahoma in 2013. So it's been over 10 years ago since America has seen an F5. Uh, all throughout history, though, I think you find a similar sentiment than what is, is found in Twister the movie in that one line, which is this idea that, that storms and more broadly speaking weather is attributed to some action of God. And there is some truth to this, biblically speaking. Psalm 107.29 says, He made the storm be still. Passages like uh, Jeremiah 23.19 speak of the storm of Yahweh, which was apparently a storm uh, that was formed by God for the purposes of judgment over a particular nation. The, The Old Testament depicts God as cosmologically powerful. He and he alone has authority over creation, including 
the weather. And, and this is precisely why this passage this week is so remarkable. Because what we find is Jesus, the teacher, the Jewish rabbi, the miracle worker, does something that only God can do. And that is precisely because Jesus, the teacher, the rabbi, the miracle worker, is none other than God himself. He is Lord over all things. This morning, as I mentioned in the welcome, we embark on a three-week series within a series that we've titled Lord of All. We're going to see various things over which Jesus is Lord. And so if you have your Bibles, open them to Mark chapter 4. And here's how the morning is going to go. Uh, I want us to just walk through the text. There's some really profound details in this passage that are worth mentioning and thinking deeply about. And then at the end, what I want to do is come back and just offer you three difficult but necessary applications from this text that I think meet us right where we are, right that there's some implications in the text that are, are really profound. If you have your Bibles open to Mark 4, we're going to read verses 35 through 41. This is the word of the Lord. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So if you remember over the last couple of weeks, we've been covering the parables that Jesus teaches in Mark chapter four. Uh, four of them, to be exact. A couple weeks ago, Dr. Reeves covered the parable of the sower and the soils, the longest parable recorded in Mark's gospel, by the way. Last week, we looked at three smaller parables, the parable of the lamp and the lampstands, the parable of the seed growing, and the parable of the mustard seed. Do you remember where Jesus was while he was telling these particular parables? You may not remember, because it was kind of a quick detail right at the very beginning of chapter four. If you remember uh, before this, they were at Simon and Andrew's house. This is where the whole uh, showdown with the teachers of the law takes place. Uh, he also has his confrontation with his mother and brothers and sisters where he talks about the family. But in Mark 4.1, it says that he leaves Simon and Andrew's home and that he is by the sea. It says, again, he began to teach beside the sea. And a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. So Jesus got into a boat and he was either sitting or standing, probably a little bit of both, and teaching the crowds in parables who had gathered on the shore of the sea. And he's just a few feet out in the water on this particular boat. Now look at verse 35 and 36. This is part of our text today. It says, on that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with him in the boat just as he was, and other boats were with him. So all of this that we're about to read is happening on the same day as all of these parables 
that he had just taught happened. He, he had gotten to the end of the day. It was evening time by this point. Uh, he had just finished teaching, and they are about to push off and go across the Sea of Galilee in this boat. And, and notice the phrase, they took him with them in the boat just as he was. This is just another way of saying that he never got out of the boat. He remained in that place the entire time of teaching. He never went onto the shore. And when he was done, he sat down and was like, let's get out of here. And they push off and they go across to the other side. And, and notice that it says that there were other boats with them. So there was sort of a fleet of boats, if you want to think of it that way. Now the word boat here, it's the Greek term ployon. It can mean a variety of different kinds of boats. But given the context, where they are and the number of boats that were with them, this is almost certainly a fishing boat, a fishing boat. Interestingly enough, in 1986, in Kibbutz Genesar, the western shore of the Sea of Galilee, which is where this was taking place, they found a well-preserved 2,000-year-old first-century boat. This would have been almost exactly the same kind of boat uh, that Jesus and his disciples were on. Of course, it's weather-worn, it's 2,000 years old, but um, more than likely the same exact kind of boat. Uh, roughly 27 feet long by about seven and a half to eight feet wide. It held a maximum of we think probably 15 people, which was perfect for Jesus and the 12 to travel on. So they're on this boat together. They push off and begin to sail to the other side of Galilee. And look at verse 37. It says, and a great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. Uh, this <clears throat> language in, in this portion of Mark's gospel indicates that this storm came on suddenly. It's like things were peaceful and calm and it, almost like in a blink of an eye, this storm has uh, come forth. And, and this would have been actually quite common in this area, it's still common today. This is a naturally conducive area to sudden thunderstorms. Galilee is surrounded by high mountains. And, and it forms the sea, uh, kind of a basin of sorts. And so uh, what happens oftentimes is the cooler air from the hills rushes down the mountains and collides with the warm air on the uh, surface of the water and it can create sudden and violent storms. And this freaks the disciples out. They begin to lose their minds. Verse 38, but he was in the stern asleep on the cushion and they woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we're dying here? It's a little bit of my translation, but I think it tracks. Why does this scare the disciples so badly? I think this is a question that, that some of us need to probably think about a little bit because, I mean, I, I think anytime you're on water, on a boat, and a storm rolls in, that's a little scary. I mean, there's no doubt about that. Uh, I personally think that the sea and the ocean is the scariest place in God's creation. Just personally, uh, not a fan of it at all. What is the saying that NASA, we created NASA to, to, to explore space because we were too scared to explore the ocean? I think that's how it goes. Uh, <clears throat> but I want you to track with a detail that maybe you're not aware of, and that is this, that probably more than likely very few of these guys actually knew how to swim. Uh, one thing that is not often on our radar is sort of the cultural practices of uh, a culture 2,000 years ago. This is one of them. Swimming in the ancient world was not a casual or leisurely thing that people just did for fun, especially in this part of the world. Perhaps the fishermen on the boat knew how to swim, given the amount of time they spent on the water would have been a helpful practice or skill to have. But I mean, there's no water parks. There's no Hurricane Harbor in Galilee, right? There's no swimming pools. You're, you're not doing these kinds of things in the ancient world. And so the skill of learning 
learning to swim was not very common. So all that to say that anytime you're on the sea and you are going to potentially go overboard, it almost always resulted in a loss of life. It would have been a very terrifying experience. And I, lo- I love the fact that while this terrifying thing is happening, the storm is blown in, the waves are crashing into the boat, it's pitch dark outside. Remember, there's no city lights, there's no electricity. It's an ancient world, very dark. You're on the ocean, storm is blown in, maybe you're seeing lightning flashes, but it is total chaos unfolding. And Jesus is just taking a nap, right? Just completely like, peace, I'm out, I'm gonna take a nap. I, I think this, there's a couple things that strike me about this, a couple details in here that strike me about this. Number one, is that it demonstrates something about the humanity of Jesus in this passage. I think one of the incredible parts of this story is that you get in one passage a brilliant example of both Jesus' humanity and his deity. And the whole point over the next three weeks is for us to consider how Jesus is fully God, that he is Lord over all things. And yet here in this passage, we see his humanity as well. Jesus had been preaching all day. He lays down when they push off to begin crossing the Sea of Galilee, and he immediately falls asleep. He's tired. He's worn out. He's been preaching all day long. He didn't have a microphone. He didn't have a sound system. So he's just yelling, and it's outside, and there's no, like, natural auditorium to to project sound. So, I mean, he'd probably exerted a lot of energy, and he was just tired. It's a striking detail. But number two, and I think equally important, is that it demonstrates something about the depth of trust that Jesus had in the Heavenly Father. So there are a couple passages that come to mind. Psalm 4.8 says, In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Proverbs 3 talks about the wisdom of trusting in Yahweh. And verse 24 says, If you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. So I want you to remember that that part of what Jesus is doing in his incarnation, in his humanity, in the flesh, is he is embodying what perfect faith and trust looks like in God the Father. So when we think about revelation, not the book, but just revelation in general, God's revealing something to us, we typically think about the words on the paper, right? Particularly the red letters. Those are the real important ones, aren't they? Yes. They're not read in Greek, by the way, spoiler, Um, or in English, especially King James. Uh, No diss against King James, it's fine, but it's just not the original. All that to say, that was a joke, you can laugh a little bit. It's fine if you read the King James. All that to say that when we think about Revelation, we think about words. And what I want you to remember is that everything Jesus is doing, his actions, him, simply his presence is in and of itself revelation. It is revealing something to us concerning who God is. In this passage, he is revealing what perfect trust in God looks like. In the middle of a storm, things are going crazy. The boat is rocking and he's sleeping peacefully. He has perfect trust that God the Father will preserve them. And in doing so, he teaches those around him to do the same, or or at least he's trying to. He is, and they're not listening. By the way, uh, just the application of napping in the middle of chaotic moments, I I think just for what it's worth uh, for for those of you, particularly ladies on Super Bowl Sunday, taking a nap during the Super Bowl then is a godly thing, right? You're 
You're more like Jesus when that happens. Just peace with you, uh, no shame. Regardless, uh, the disciples are not getting the message, right? They don't, they don't understand what's happening here. They're completely beside themselves. How can Jesus be sleeping right now? We are, we are literally about to die and he's taking a nap. And, and so they rebuke him. Do you not care, Lord, that we're dying here? Probably shook him a little bit, right? What's going on? But notice they don't call him Lord. Verse 38, they don't call him Lord. They don't call him Master. They don't call him God. They call him didaskalos, teacher. But Jesus is not merely a teacher. And he proves that in verse 39. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. Now, it's, it's not as evident in the English translation, but this actually harkens back a little bit to chapter 1, Mark 1, uh, verse 25. There's a, a portion in Mark 1 where Jesus, he confronts a, a man with an unclean spirit, a demon-possessed man. And he rebukes the demon who has possessed this individual by saying, be silent. And if you remember when we talked about this weeks ago, the verb there in Greek, thimao, it's a word that literally means to muzzle, to be muzzled to where you can't speak. He says to the demon, be muzzled. And the demon is muzzled. He no longer speaks. He totally obeys the Lord Jesus. Here in verse 39, Jesus' literal translation of his words is to the storm, silent, be muzzled. And the storm and the sea immediately are muzzled. They obey him. And again, it's, it's not as clear in the English, but the Greek tense indicates that this is an immediate calming, which just my opinion, would have been almost equally terrifying. Like you're in the middle of this chaotic storm and he's like, shut up! And everything is just like immediately calm. I'd be like, I need to not be here right now. <laughs> I feel like something's about to go down. I don't know what it is, but this is very tense, right? This whole sequence of events though, it, it demonstrates something about how dense these disciples really are. They have, I mean, think about this. We're through chapter four, right? They have seen Jesus do some things. They have seen him cast out demons. They have seen him perform miracles, heal leprosy, heal other illnesses, heal a paralytic, and forgive him of his sins, which is in and of itself a, a big deal. They've watched him do things that only God can do. They've been, we talked about this last week, they've been given the secrets of the kingdom of God and they still don't get it. They still come to him, terrified of the storm, teacher, we're dying here. That doesn't even make sense. Why you would go to your teacher in the middle of a storm? A teacher can't do anything for you in the middle of a storm. He can't speak to the wind and the waves and they obey him. Only God can do this. Job 28, 25 says that it was God who gave to the wind its weight and apportioned the waters by measure. That means for you, just as an application, that when you are outside, when you're just doing your day-to-day -day business and you feel the wind against your face, it's God who does this. This is the finger of God, the hand of God, the breath of God. Amos 4.13, I love this one. For behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is his thought, who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth. The Lord, Yahweh, the God of hosts, is his name. The Lord is his name. 
or in our context in Mark chapter four, the Lord Jesus Christ is his name. I read to you Psalm 107.29 earlier at the beginning. I want to reread it again to you, but this time I want to include verses 23 through 30. Because what is striking and almost certainly prophetic about this passage in Psalm 107 is that it is a detailed poetic picture of almost everything that unfolds in Mark 4.35 through 41. Everything that Jesus and the disciples are experiencing is almost perfectly described in Psalm 107. Let me read it for you. This is beginning in verse 23. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits end. This psalm describes a group of men on boats. There are other boats around them. Uh, they are on the sea, and while they are on the water, a storm blows in very suddenly, and they quickly become terrified. The, the waves and the wind are moving the boat up into the sky and down super low into the depths of the ocean, and they are full of fear. Their courage melts away immediately. They stagger like drunken men. They can't stand up straight because the boat is rocking so hard. And this is almost exactly a picture of what's going on in Mark 4. And then look at verse 28. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. I mean, this is, again, exactly what the disciples are doing. They just don't realize it. They're crying out to Jesus. They thought they're crying out to their teacher. They're crying out to the Lord. And what does the Lord do? Psalm 107, 29, it says, he made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. This is exactly what Jesus does. Psalm 107 almost perfectly describes the events that unfold in Mark chapter four with one major exception. The last verse, verse 30, the men on the boats, it says, then they were glad that the waters were quiet and he brought them to their desired haven. They were glad, they rejoiced. Praise God, get the WOW 97 CD, put it in, let's sing. <laughs> Stephen Curtis Chapman. It's not what the disciples do. Mark 4:41, and they were filled with great fear. They weren't glad. They weren't full of joy. They didn't sing hymns. They were afraid. This verse stops me in my tracks almost every time I read it. They went into the storm afraid of the storm. They came out of the storm afraid of Jesus. The storm was so overpowering and violent and they knew we have no chance of surviving this and it was terrifying to them. And when Jesus stands up and rebukes the wind and the waves, they think to themselves, if we thought we were helpless against the storm, how much more helpless are we against the guy who with one word can make them totally be still? In the end of verse 41, it says, and they said to one another, who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? I thought only God could do this. How is it that our rabbi is doing this? The guy we've been following and eating meals with and hearing him teach and seeing him do all these things. I didn't know he could do that. It's a little terrifying. 
Because they hadn't yet connected the dots. They hadn't figured it out yet. Jesus isn't merely a teacher. He is Lord over all things. Part of what that means is that he is Lord over creation. He has cosmological power. What does cosmological even mean? It's, it's a word that relates to the origin and the development of the universe. He has power over the universe. Why? Because he created it. He is the origin of it. He develops it by the word of his power. Why do the wind and the waves obey him? Because he made the wind and the waves. This is the testimony of scripture. John 1.3, all things came into being through him. That Greek word all is really interesting. It means all. <laughs> all of it. Everything that exists comes into existence through Jesus Christ. John 1.10 goes on. It says the world was made through him. I love the way Paul says it. Colossians 1.16. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, both visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Everything that you can see in creation and everything you cannot see in creation was made by him, made through him, and made for him. He's preeminent over it all. He stands above it all because he is the God, the Lord of all things. The wind and the waves answer to him because he's their master and they recognize it. The disciples just hadn't figured this out yet. They're going to figure it out. Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit comes and they are full of the Spirit, they're going to understand everything. Everything that Jesus said, the helper is going to come and help make sense of that stuff. And they are going to get it and they are going to go in power and the power of the Spirit. And they are going to proclaim the gospel unto their death. But at this point, they're just scared that this guy that they thought they knew pretty well and were really comfortable around has power that they could not possibly imagine. Who is this that the wind and the waves obey? Now, if this is true, and I believe it is, I believe it is the testimony of Scripture, then there are some applications from this text that I want us to connect with this morning that, that meet us, I think, like I said, right where we are today. There's three of them. They're, they're difficult. I'm just going to be honest. They're difficult, but I think they're necessary. Here's the first one. The presence of fear in a circumstance reveals the absence of trust in the Lord. Let me say that again. The presence of fear in a circumstance reveals the absence of trust in the Lord. This is the issue with the disciples. They feared their circumstances because they didn't fully trust Jesus. You'll notice I'm using the word trust and not faith. Why? Uh, it's intentional. Faith really is the, the biblical language in your translations. Uh, verse 40, Jesus says, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? So why use trust instead of faith? It's because I'm convinced we don't really understand biblical faith in our colloquial language. Faith in America in 2024 generally means something like either intellectual belief or just blind following, neither of which convey the biblical meaning. The Greek term pistis, it's a word that means to firm conviction or trust, deep-seated trust. You could translate Jesus' words to his disciples this way, why are you so afraid? Have you still no trust? It's a belief, but, it, but it's one that impacts my actions. It's one that shapes my behavior and my choices. This is the issue with the disciples. It isn't that they haven't accepted that Jesus is capable of miracles or that he might even be a prophet. 
The issue is they didn't trust him as God. They were confronted, think about this. They're confronted with a circumstance. They are scared to death of this circumstance despite the fact that God is literally sitting next to them. This is what makes them so relatable to me. I can relate to this. Jesus says to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no trust? And I just can't help but wonder if Jesus hasn't said the same thing to you too when you've been afraid of a circumstance in your life. So many of you right now are navigating circumstances. Some good, some not so good. Some hard. Some full of brokenness and the unknown. And I think if you were being honest, you're scared to death of that circumstance. And I think that if you could hear his voice clearly in those moments, you might hear him say, why are you so afraid? Have you still no trust? Now, I want to I put some guardrails around that. Sometimes we do things, we make choices in our lives that are contra to God's will and commands. They're bad ideas and we enter into those circumstances and we mistake natural consequences for God's just abandoned me. No, God told you not to do it in the first place and you did it and now you're living it out. But, but notice in this story, who tells them to push off into the Sea of Galilee where the storm is? Jesus. So here's what this means. It means whenever you're following the will of God in your life, it doesn't mean there won't be storms. It means that even through the storms, if you will trust him, you'll have no fear and he'll preserve you through it. And whatever that looks like. Jesus is sovereign over creation. Here's what that means. It means at a bare minimum, he's sovereign over whatever circumstance you're facing right now. So that's number one. It doesn't get better. Number two. <laughs> saying he is Lord is not the same thing as submitting to him as Lord. Saying he is Lord, not the same thing as submitting to him as Lord. It is easy to confess that Jesus is Lord. It is the battle cry of uh, the Reformation. It's the battle cry of evangelicalism. Jesus is Lord. We believe that. We love to do that. It's easy to say that. It's much more difficult to submit every aspect of my life to him as Lord. And yet, this is what he demands. If Jesus is my Lord, understand this, only until obedience gets difficult or it costs me extra money or it inconveniences me somehow, he's not really Lord over my life. So practically speaking, if a person is a Christian, confessing Christian, and is yet sleeping around, using pornography, acting with sexual immorality, or maybe it's not sexual behavior, maybe it's ethical, maybe it's conducting dishonest business or cheating people out of things in order to make an extra buck, this reveals he's not your Lord, not over that. Why? Because as Lord, he's been very clear not to do those things. And so when you do those things anyways, what you're really saying is, Jesus is not my Lord over this part of my life. I am. Because I've decided, despite Jesus' warning, that this is probably the best thing for me. He can be my Savior. I love Jesus the Savior because I need saving often. 
from my bad choices. But I, I, Lord, I, I don't know that I want him to be Lord over my life because then I have to be accountable to him as Lord over my life when I do my own thing. And spoiler alert, you're accountable to him regardless. Whether you're submitted to him as Lord or not, he is Lord. He is Lord over all things. It, it doesn't matter if you acknowledge that. It doesn't change reality. So the question is not whether Jesus is Lord. The question is whether I'm a faithful servant to him. Whether I've submitted everything to him. Some of you need to examine areas of your life and ask, have I really submitted this to Jesus as Lord? And if you haven't, then you need to repent. And the great news is when you repent, he is gracious and he is merciful. And he will receive you and forgive you because he loves you. Here's the third one. Creation's obedience to the lordship of Jesus highlights the severity of my disobedience. The wind and the waves obey him. We're going to see over the next couple of weeks, demons obey him. Sickness obeys him. Death obeys him. He's the creator and the sustainer of all things. All things bend themselves towards his will and obey, except you and me. We are of all creation, the only ones that go, not today, not today. I think I'm gonna do my own thing today, Lord. You can come bail me out when it gets bad, if it gets bad. This highlights the severity of our nature as fallen people. When entire oceans obey the voice of Jesus and I don't, I mean, it's easy to think, like, I'm a pretty good guy, you know? I, I go to seminary. <laughs> I'm in church every Sunday. I'm a pretty good guy. I do most things the right way. I'm pretty okay. Don't be fooled. Don't be fooled. We are the unique part of creation that says no to God when everything else says yes. And here's the other interesting part about it. We don't have time to go into it this morning. We're also unique in that we're made in his image and nothing else is, which is kind of like a double down, right? For some of you, here's how I want to close. Some of you have never submitted to Jesus as Lord. I recognize that in almost any given church service in the Bible Belt, uh, there are those of you who have just never made a decision to turn your will and the care of your life over to Jesus as your Lord. And I want to invite you to do that, to repent and believe the gospel and be born again and see that life actually has meaning and value when you follow Jesus. There is a misnomer that Jesus just wants to kind of rain on your parade. Kill all your fun. I've heard younger people like, yeah, I'll become a Christian later. I want to, you know, I want to do my own thing and have fun and, you know, I don't want to lose out on all that and then I'll just become a, a Christian later on in my life. And, and I can just tell you, I didn't come to Faith Falls 21. If you fill up the bank of like regrets that I have, 90% of it is swimming with 21 and under for me. Jesus doesn't want to prevent you from having fun. Jesus wants to prevent you from destroying yourself. And you can do that today, and I would love to walk through that process with you. So if, if you've never given your life to Jesus, you want to know how, please come talk to me afterwards. I would love to walk through that. I hope that, that this morning and the next couple of weeks are going to be helpful, edifying, maybe challenging, hopefully challenging, but that at the end of it, you will walk away with the firm conviction that whatever your view of Jesus is right now, it's nowhere near as big as he actually is. Jesus is Lord, not just over the church, not just over my life. He's Lord over all. And praise God for that. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for this morning, God, for the, the beautiful picture of your power displayed in creation. And we thank you, God, that you've revealed yourself in a way that we are able to fully know and see men in the past, women in the past who saw you with their eyes, who touched you with their hands. The word became flesh means that, that to see Jesus is to see God. There's, there's, no, there's nothing else more that reveals God than Christ because we acknowledge him as Lord and God over all things. We thank you for that. I pray that the ministry of your Holy Spirit would be at work this morning in the hearts of your people to make applications where necessary and that we would leave today with a larger vision of the glory and the exaltation of Jesus, for he is worthy of it all. Pray these things in his powerful name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. We'll see you next time.